This episode of Superman in the Bronze Age is respectfully dedicated to Susanna York, who passed away on January 15, 2011, at the age of 72. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. And welcome to episode 9 of Superman and Bronze Age, the only podcast on the internet that exclusively covers Superman and his adventures from late 1970 to late 1986. I am your host, Charlie Niemeyer, and before we actually get into any of the reviews this month, um, I want to bring your attention to a, a Superman cause that has been started on uh, the show From Crisis to Crisis. Uh, it is a Superman podcast hosted by Jeffrey Taylor and Michael Bailey, which basically um, I've, I'm covering the era right before where theirs picks up. They pick up uh, where John Byrne relaunches the Superman titles with the Man of Steel miniseries in 1986 and is running and is doing reviews on all of Superman's adventures all the way up until we get to Infinite Crisis in 2006. And, and um, unfortunately, there's been a very large gap of stories in that era that have yet to be covered in trade paperback form and are not exactly easy to get a hold of in the back issues. So Jeffrey and Michael have decided that they want to put together um, a little something to try to get uh, a certain story that they really enjoyed um, to get that finally reprinted. So I'm going to play a clip from their most recent episode as I record this, which explains the entire situation. And because uh, I think they could put it, they put it in the words better than I could. So here you go. A couple weeks ago, I was reading the latest edition of the Ask Matt feature over on the Superman homepage. And, and David, email address, uh, email address withheld by request, asks, Hello, Matt. Thank you for answering questions. Since you're the editor of Superman Batman now, I wanted to ask you if the Dark Knight over Metropolis storyline could be collected. Hardcover, please? The story where Superman first gives Batman the kryptonite ring in case Superman ever loses control. It was only three issues, but it can include a few setup stories and be like a Superman slash Batman Volume Zero. Hey, even Dan Jurgens is on record as wondering why this hasn't been collected. Matt's answer was, that's an awfully great idea, David, while there are no plans presently, that's something we'll most definitely keep in the brain pan, no worries. Okay, folks, I read this, and my first thought was, this needs to happen. My first thought was, okay, he's on. Dan Jurgens is on record for wanting this. Oh, yeah. I'm wondering if he's on record for wanting this because of being on record in our show. Yeah, he he did talk about that in the interview we did with him about wondering why it has never been collected. So here is what I want to happen, and here is where we need your help. Um, we need a, a, a Dark Knight over Metropolis hardcover uh and then a trade paperback and and having it as a superman batman zero hardcover slash trade paperback would actually be a huge selling point and since the giving the kryptonite ring to batman is something that is still talked about in current superman and batman stories 
it fits into that mold well and and just simply having it being a, a number zero trade paperback is w- would be a huge selling point for a lot of people it would sell a lot more th- than even just having it be the dark knight over metropolis okay so there there there's like three things that came into my mind when I was really thinking of how we were going to make this happen as, as, as far as being a movement. The first was, well, three issues isn't all that much to put into a trade paperback or a hardcover. And then I started thinking that you could do other stories involving the ring. Uh, specifically, a couple stories happening around the time Luther became president, where Batman was going after the ring to get it. So if you put all of those... Not issues, to spoil ahead, but but we are making an exception for this. Uh, yeah, excuse, I'm sorry. No, no, uh, no. Um, we, we, we are making an exception for this to get plus, this going. Plus, in the back, as like an addendum, you throw in Superman Annual number three. Since that's where Batman uses the ring to kill Superman. Right. So, okay, so that's how you could make it a full-on trade and make it may- maybe make it a little more worthwhile to produce. The Superman Batman Volume 0, as Jeffrey said, is a great idea because then you have trade dress for it. And like you said, you have kind of a uh, a series to put it with so that it's not just, like you said, Dark Knight over Metropolis. So this is what we need from you. We need two things. One... Jeffrey and I are pretty sure that Bob Wayne is the guy that handles all the trade paperbacks. I'm not dead certain of this, but I think it is. So I know that he was. He was. So what we need to know is who is responsible for trade paperbacks. Jeffrey is going to do a little digging when he goes to work next uh, by looking in one of the newer trades that's come out at the comic shop he works at. And we're going to figure out the email address. If somebody has that email address, send it to us. Here's the and, second and we thing. will personally give you thanks. And we will personally give you on thanks the on the show. Here's the other thing that we need. Once we get that email address, we need as many of you as possible. This is a two-part thing, folks. We need as many of you as possible to write a very short, polite, succinct email to whoever it is that we need to write to asking for this to happen. Do not make demands. Do not be rude. Do not say, hey, why haven't you done this before, idiots? We want the... Jeffrey kicked around the idea of a form letter, and after thinking about it for a minute or two, I was like, no, because then it could be like the same person writing over and over and over again. So it's kind of important that you put it in your own words that you want this to happen. Okay, so once we get it, we get, the, we get the email address, we start flooding the email box. Here's the second part, folks, and this is the important part. You need to buy it when it comes out. Yes. You need to pre-order it when it comes out. If you do not go to a comic shop, go to Amazon.com. And when it when it is solicited, it will end up in previews, and that, that should be a couple of months before it's actually set to come out. If you are a continual listener to the show... I will let you know. One, well, one of us will let you know, yes, it's been solicited. You need to go to your comic shop and order it, or you need to go on Amazon and, and pre-order it. But the pre-orders are what 
make it happen. Yeah, because that that tells them how many they need to print. Exactly. Plus, I mean, they they oftentimes do print more just so that there are some for the direct market to go to, like, Barnes & Noble, Borders, and the big bookstores. But pre-ordering does let them know how many to print, and there may not be a second print run. Exactly. And like I said, Amazon... We we want this to end up on the bookshelves. We we, we would love to have multiple printings, but having a whole lot in that first print run makes a big difference. And Amazon.com will have it. I'm sure the, you know, like uh, DCB comic book service and the other online services that a lot of people use where they get their books once a month will have it in their previews. So, But if you have a local comic shop, support your local comic shop, but pre-order it. Don't just yeah. wait till it comes out and buy it off the shelf. Yeah, it's, it's really important because this is kind of something that Jeffrey and I wanted to be kind of the legacy of this podcast. I mean, the podcast is going to be out there as long as the server that I use to put the the shows on. As long as I keep paying for them, there'll be a place to download it. But to have something tangible, something that I can put on my shelf and go, wow, that's something that Jeffrey and I helped usher into existence. Especially since there is a lot of this era that hasn't been traded yet. There's a lot that has. A lot of it is out of print. But it, 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 at least at some point, it was there for you to buy. And, and, and here's my other little tag on hope. We get this. I done. believe this is mine. My, 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 I believe this is my tag on hope. Uh, we didn't discuss it, but okay. <laughs> okay. Um, we get not. this done. We start on others. Yeah. I. Uh, okay. I. I thought you were about to say mention us so that we can get a thanks in the acknowledgement. Oh yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Okay. That's the other important thing. When you're writing, I forgot to mention that. Thank you for reminding me, Jeffrey. When you're writing the letter or the email, mention I was listening to the show from Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the Superman homepage. Yeah, and and it doesn't matter that it's not our name as long as that's as long as, as that's long in as that's in there. Yeah, that's what we want. So, and if things it, came out absolutely perfectly, they it would be really awesome actually if they asked us to do a forward together or something. <laughs> um, but but that's but that's beside the point. That that's no, like the least of our the worries. most important thing. Is but it to would get be cool this, if is to get this trade paper back together. And to, and to basically convince DC Comics that it needs to be done. Because they've got a lot of material to reprint. And these trade paperbacks are huge financial investments for them. And not only in terms of the print costs, but in having to pay the creators because of how the royalty contracts were structured at the time that the stories came out. So it's a lot easier to do stories before 1976 and after 1997 because of how royalty structures were made up. That basically sometimes a creator has to lose money for a trade to come out. They have to sign away rights to certain monies that they would be due normally. But those monies make it cost prohibitive for DC to publish the trade because they'd lose money on the trade. Um, something that we were privy to that isn't a big thing to uh, 
to really mention is that when the Crisis on Infinite Earths hardcover came out in 1998, the creators lost money on that deal, but just to get it out, they all agreed to do it. So hopefully that, that can be done here. But more than anything, Jeffrey and I just want to see a Dark Knight over Metropolis. You know, Superman, Batman, Volume Zero, Dark Knight over Metropolis. Okay, and that's it. Now, now just make sure. Uh, I did not leave it in accidentally. Uh, we do want to make sure that you mentioned that you heard it on From Crisis to Crisis. Uh, if you send in a letter or an email, that it uh, was from, from Crisis to Crisis. So if you do write in a, want to write in an email or a letter, make sure you mention From Crisis to Crisis. Now that we've got, now we're past that, um, what I'm going to do now is move on to the comics this month. And we actually have a pretty good month this month. Uh, we have three comics to cover. Uh, the first one, ironically, uh, since we missed it last, since we didn't have one last month, uh, uh, they decided to put out World's Finest before any of the others this month. So we've got World's Finest number 202, starring Superman and Batman, which... Is a normal thing for World's Finest, I suppose, but uh, at this point, since it's just a Superman title, a Superman team-up title, sorry, uh, it's pretty cool to have Batman in the story again. Uh, we start off, it's a May 1971 issue that was released on March 11th, 1971, with a cover by Neil Adams and Dick Giordano, which is basically showing, uh, looks like Superman and Batman are inside some kind of a cavern, and Superman is basically strangling Batman, and there's a being behind them that looks like a mummy uh, with a glowing, <clears throat> a glowing head, looks like a sun. And I don't know if it's just discoloration on the cover I have or if it's actually supposed to be purple on this cover. doesn't exactly jive with the rest of the story, but that's for later on notes. Uh, but it's a, it's, it looks like a purple sun, and he's commanding Superman to kill Batman. Well, actually, commanding them both to kill each other. So, And it says on the cover, this is not an imaginary fight scene, nor a symbolic picture, nor any other sort of cop-out. Which is basically also exactly what it says on the first page of the story. Because basically without the guy in the mummy outfit, we basically once again see Superman strangling Batman. Although this time, Batman looks like he's not fighting back as well, and he's losing pretty badly. But um, this uh, the title of this story is called Vengeance of the Otoon Thing. The story is by Denny O'Neill. The art is by Dick Dillon uh, and jo, uh, Joe Gaiella. And the editor is Julie Schwartz. So the story starts with Superman flying around, um, I guess on his way back to Metropolis, I would hope, through a common electrical storm when suddenly he's struck by lightning. And for some reason, this causes him to drop like an anchor in, uh, to the ground. Uh, the some uh, what you gonna call these some bandits happen to spot him uh, as he's walking around in a daze and ask him his if he's Superman. He says he doesn't know uh, because he's apparently lost his memory too. So they decide they're going to use this to their advantage and use him to help them. The next morning, a few miles away from there, we see that Lois Lane is with an archaeological dig. And they are trying to, and while they don't exactly mention what it is he's digging for, uh, apparently it will be soon, but Lois is starting to get impatient because she has to get back to the States by the weekend, and, there, and the, a story is expected, and she's expected to have a story to go back with. Unfortunately, she hasn't found it yet. But uh, 
we do learn that what they're looking for is the tomb of King Malice, and uh, which was buried, uh, or and he was who was a king that uh, ruled in the area more than five thousand years ago, and um, apparently he was thought of to be no more than myth. So these these archaeology guys are trying to prove of his existence. However, the desert raiders suddenly show up, and when they start, when the archaeological dig members start uh, firing um, on the lead guy, uh, the bullets just start bouncing off of him, and he jumps down and beats up everybody and ties up their weapons, literally. And uh, Lois thinks that somehow her fingernails would do the job, but Led didn't. And when she pulls off his mask, it turns out it is Superman. And that explains everything, but he doesn't remember Lois either. And everyone is taken hostage, along with Lois, who doesn't really put up a fight. Uh, but at that night, uh, they are warned that there's a helicopter that's supposed to be bringing supplies. So when we see, we, and of course we move ahead real quick to that night, and we see the pilots in the helicopter who are suddenly met by a glowing beam of some kind flying up and saying he's the ghost of King Malice, and they need to leave or risk the doom that has befallen Dr. Harkley, who is the guy from the archaeological dig. So they leave because they think, you know, they don't want to deal with any of that stuff, and we find out that the glowing garments and everything was Superman in disguise. They don't explain how the garments were glow glowing, but uh, we do see that it was, in fact, Superman. And then they decide, and then the, uh, they decide that they're going to use the archaeological guys to unlock or to find the tomb. Uh, meanwhile, uh, back in the states, in a penthouse high over Gotham City, millionaire Bruce Wayne uh, hears a bulletin over the news that mentions that the archaeological party is missing and that authorities have no explanation for the ghost that appeared. Which, of course, means that this could be an interesting challenge for the Batman. So, using his bat jet, super, uh, Superman, Batman flies over the ocean, I'm guessing the Atlantic, and once he gets there, in full costume, except he's got his mask pulled down, uh, he, rides, he is able to rent a dune buggy to get across the desert, and finally catches up to where King Malice's tomb might be, uh, where the uh, archaeological party was performing its dig. Uh, he tries to get some, tries to see if he can find anybody, so he shouts hello. That doesn't work. Uh, but he does see footprints heading into this abandoned building, uh, which must be, which he assumes is the entrance to the tomb. Uh, so first, <clears throat> Batman closes his eyes to get himself accustomed to darkness, uh, and then he decides that his years of experience tell him that there's probably someone waiting for him on the other side. So instead of just walking through the entranceway, he leaps through doing a somersault, which catches the two hidden uh, bandits off guard. Batman's able, able to easily knock them out uh, before Superman shows up, and Batman tries to fight him, uh, thinking that this is some kind of, uh, since they've been teammates for so long, he thinks that this is some something Superman's trying to do, some sort of a plan, so Batman's going to try to make it look good, but thinks that 
Superman's just gonna, you know, be easy on him. Unfortunately, Superman, Superman's first whack at Batman actually nearly takes his head off, and he starts strangling him to the point where Batman is practically dead. Actually, just knocked out though. Uh, so his master uh, tells him to shackle him up, and they can use him for the digging. Uh, meanwhile. At that instant, at that exact instant, in the waste of the Arctic, a pair of supermen are smashing the ice mountain to bits. And suddenly they're told, there's told, Rob, uh, robots, stop. And we find out that it's Superman. And it turns out that this is the real Superman here. And he's got his robots lined up. That uh, They started off as Superboy robots, but of course over time he built them into Superman robots. And they've been serving him pretty much flawlessly, unfortunately. Um, it turns out that lately on Earth, uh, these delicate robots are attuned to the planet itself. But with all the pollution and overpopulation and man-made radiation, um, it's causing the robots to act to go haywire. So Superman has decided that the time has come to finally shut them down for good. And flies off to the daily uh, to gal to the galaxy broadcasting system since he needs to be at work. Uh, right at 9 a.m. Superman or Clark walks comes out of the storage room only to be met by Jimmy who who asks him if he's heard about Lois. And he says, uh, no, he's been gone on vacation for the last few days. What's up? So Jimmy tells, tells him that she's disappeared along with the rest of the archaeological expedition. And so Clark uh, gets away from Jimmy real fast, which is back to Superman and flies out to uh, the Middle East and the deserts. Fly, uh, flies out to King Malice's tomb. Uh, but for some reason, his x-ray vision can't penetrate, so there must be lead, obviously, in the building. So... You know, he lands and heads into the tomb to see Lois and Batman and Harkley doing the digging, while another, while Superman and the expedition or the bandits are uh, telling him to move faster. But the real Superman makes himself known and decide, and points out that this is just a robot and tries to tell the robot to return to the fortress. However, it it again is going a little honk, uh, wonky due to the overpopulation and man radiation and pollution and has decided he doesn't want to follow Superman's orders anymore. So he decides to go back to go against Superman, but of course Superman isn't stupid and would never make one of his robots actually stronger than him. So he basically takes him and throws him into a wall, which causes his chest plate to open up and some damage to one of his arms. Batman decides to use this opportunity to fight back as well and takes out the head bandit. Unfortunately, uh, the bandit falls and tries to uh, balance himself by pulling on a ring that was on the tomb door, and or the crypt door, sorry, and pulls it open. And suddenly this single ray of searing pure red light shoots forth and strikes Superman, causing him to weaken greatly. Uh, then, of course, the robot is now able to come up and take down Superman very easily and actually is going to is beating him to a pulp and is close to being killed. Uh, Lois begs for, uh, for Batman to go help Superman, 
he does his best to attempt it, but gets a powerful punch to the chin uh, and, and gets knocked out himself. And so it turns out it was basically pointless. Meanwhile, back at the crypt, we see a creature coming out, and it, from the cover, it is the mummy man, but this time it's a glowing red sun that he has for head, apparently. And he goes crazy, and even though the bandits praise him and at, uh, tell him that they released him and ask for his freedom and ask for him to work for them or work with them, he says that malice is free, doomed to flesh. And he knocks the bandits all out and is about to do something to Superman. He starts to pick up Superman, but bat fortunately, about that time, bat uh, Batman comes to realizes his jaw's broken. Uh, but also realizes that Superman's about to die, so he needs to fight through the pain and do something. So he takes his cape and throws it over. Or, well, let's try this again. So he realizes he needs to do something to help Superman. He realizes that obviously the red sun on the mummy's head is not an actual sun because it hasn't, it hasn't, it isn't putting out any heat. Number two, he also realizes that since it's a red sun, it's making uh, Superman loses powers, so he take uh, Batman takes his cape and throws it over the the, uh, head, the mummy's head, which cuts off the solar the red radiation hitting Superman, and he starts to recover. Uh, as he as uh, Lois and Batman try to get him away, um, they all he they and Harkley all try to leave the tomb, but the Superman robot wakes up, and Bat and Batman suddenly decides that you know what. He can take on this robot, and with a couple of solid punches, is able to make the robot fall apart. But then, of course, doing that, he's now attacked by the mummy again. But Superman is has recovered enough to be able to pick up a large rock and throw it straight at the head of the mummy, which dislodges the red sun and causes it to roll away as the mummy falls apart. Superman gives one giant punch, and we find out it's actually a robot. They don't know exactly where it's from, but apparently it's some kind of an automaton with a nuclear power plant that emits the band of red solar radiation for a head and was undoubtedly locked in here tens of centuries ago by beings from another world. But they'll never know who they were or why they did so. And then, without worrying at all about the fact that the bandits are still inside the tomb, Harkley, Batman, Lois, and Superman walk out into the sunlight. The end. Um, this wasn't a bad story. It's a pretty interesting story. I do have quite a few notes on this. Uh, first of all, this story was reprinted in the Best of DC number 20. Uh, so there's another place that y'all can read it if you really want to. Uh, on page two of this story, um, we see Superman get struck by lightning. That should be our first clue that something's wrong because obviously super, uh, lightning doesn't hurt him. It tickles. Uh, page eight. Um, I thought it was interesting that Batman refers to this as an interesting challenge. Um, I would uh, I would think he'd be more interested in trying to help the people than just go looking for a challenge. But then again, I don't have much experience in reading Batman comics from this era. Uh, also, it doesn't make much sense why. Uh, no, of course, it does for the story, and I'm sure he's done it before, and it doesn't make sense to me anyway. But Batman usually um, 
in my experience, is focused very heavily on Gotham. But he'll go out of the out of the city if he has to do if it's for something that he's connected with, like some Wayne Foundation thing, or I don't know, Robin being kidnapped by Rachel Rule or something like that. Uh, but there is no connection mentioned in this about why Batman would be interested in helping out this archaeological party. Um, but he goes anyway, so that's just kind of weird. Usually he leaves that kind of stuff for the other superheroes and the authorities while he tries to clean up Gotham. But then again, this is a different era of Batman, so um, what do I know? Um, also thought it was interesting on page 8 that he was riding around the desert in the, the dune buggy, but he had his cowl off. Now granted, that, that, that kind of makes sense because he does mention it's really hot, and I can understand why he would do that. But... Um, the one thing that he's usually really big on is making sure he keeps that cowl on. The shirt can come off, the cape can come off, as we saw in the story. Just about any other part of it can come off, but he doesn't want anyone to find out his identity, and he would leave that cowl on no matter what. But in this instance, he's riding around half the desert. Now, granted, no one's going to, not too many people are going to see him out there in the desert, but you never know. These days, I'm sure he would keep it on due to all the, you know, monitoring satellites and all the high tech stuff that people could use to actually see him from long distances, but I'm kind of surprised he didn't do it there. Uh, page 10, when he's fighting the bandits when he first enters the tomb, uh, Batman's really talkative here. I'm not used to hearing Batman talk so much, except maybe on Super Friends or the old uh, the old TV show. And even then, during the fights, they didn't talk a whole lot. Um, but he goes in there and he he's being kind of not really chummy, but he's uh, actually, doing some doing some of Robert of Robin's bit where he's actually making puns while he's doing the fighting, mentions how he taught Black Canary some judo moves and all this other stuff. So I mean, he's just uh, really talkative to these guys, which is out of the ordinary for me in my experience with Batman. Um, page twelve. Uh, we see uh, Batman pretty easily get defeated by Superman. Now, some people could say uh, Batman wasn't going his, you know, full uh, everything. He was just trying to make the fight look somewhat presentable so that people would think they were fighting. But I would think this would be a good a good evidence that uh, Batman should not be able to defeat Superman except with unless he happens to have Kryptonite with him. Um, or in this case, as we find out later, it's uh, actually a robot that's weaker than Superman, so that even makes more sense. Uh, on page 13, uh, this is where Superman, for the final time, deactiv deactivates his robots. Uh, I note, I'm noting this because, for one thing, um, according to what I have found, uh, to the research I did for this episode, this is apparently the last Superman robot story we'll ever see. I want to say there's one more. But I don't remember the story off the top of my head. But um, this is the last one where we actually see a Superman robot. There might be some stories with Superboy robots, considering Superboy takes place before this time period. But um, this is the last Superman robot story. And I uh, um, also noticed that uh, in the span of just a few months, uh, Julie Schwartz and Denny O'Neill seem to have gotten rid quite of quite a bit of some of the sillier things from the Silver Age. Um, Superman's power level seems to be diminishing a little bit. Um, we're getting rid of the Superman robots here. Got rid of uh, Kryptonite 
early a uh, few issues a few episodes ago. Uh, so, although I would call kryptonite sillier, but um, it gets rid of all of the kryptonite currently on Earth. So the stories are gonna are are gonna be a little more uh, interesting to read and see because of all the stuff that they used to use. Fortunately, uh, in the Bronze Age. Uh, Lois and Lana are not near as intent on trying to prove that Clark and Superman are the same anymore. Well, at least not in the Superman stories. Um, so the robot, so some of the point of having the robots, uh, you know, is kind of taken away. So there's not really much of a reason to have the robots at this point. So I can understand why they've done this. Um, but yeah, I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, page 14. We actually get three panels of Superman as Clark Kent, which uh, I, I actually get a laugh out of because, yes, we, uh, we know it's only three panels, but on the third panel, he even mentions, uh, I think that sets a record for the, I've never been Clark for less than a minute before. So I thought that was pretty funny that not only do they, out, do they point out that basically this was a plot exposition device, but they also mentioned that... Um, you know, him being Clark and talking to Jimmy, but we also see that, you know, it's almost like Clark realizes it too, so it's kind of funny. Um, also, once again, uh, someone forgot to tell Dick Dillon that Clark Kent does not have the spit curl that Superman has, although apparently Clark does comb his hair backwards from Superman, so the S curls will be different. I don't know. It's hard to explain. It looks like it's in, a, no, it's in the same direction. Never mind. Someone forgot to tell Dick Dillon that Clark does not have the spit curl. Uh, but anyway, uh, moving on, uh, page 18, uh, which is where Superman's being killed by the robot. So Batman jumps in to try to help and pretty much just get knocked, gets knocked out with one punch. It, that was pretty much a pointless scene. It's almost like they had to throw something in there, um, you know, to fill in the pages. Page 20, uh, Batman uh, points out that he's got a broken jaw, but somehow he's able to talk. Uh, clearly, too, and that doesn't seem to be a big, big, big deal to him. Usually, when you, there's a reason why when someone breaks their jaw, you, they have to uh, have the, their mouths wired shut uh, because you don't want to move it. And if you do move it, it's like, oh, I guess. that probably would have been funnier had it. Had this been a video cast, but um, anyway, uh, so yeah, that that was kind of weird. Um, page 21 now, Batman can take down the robot without any problem. He's, uh, Superman has not done any more damage to this robot than was already done, but somehow, uh, Batman suddenly is strong enough and competent enough that he can take down this robot without any hesitation and even makes him fall apart even more. So that's interesting. Uh, and page 22, uh, the final page, um, there seems to be no rush to get Batman medical attention or to have the bandits arrested or anything. They just, the four good guys just stroll out of the tomb. No problem. So, I don't know. But beyond that, it was a pretty good story. Um, only things I wanted to note uh, beyond what I already mentioned was uh, for overall purposes, uh, this is the last Superman robot story. And also, uh, the one complaint I have is uh, with Batman, uh, a combination of the way he's written and the way he looks, 
Now, obviously, Dick Dillon is not Neil Adams, but he does not look like the version of Batman that is famous in the 70s for, ha for everyone copying kind of Neil Adams' look. He has no real darkness to him. It basically, even with the bat look of the bat symbol, this basically looks like Batman from the mid-60s after the new design Batman was de uh, made its debut, uh, which is basically the version of Batman that the Batman TV show was kind of based on. So it just looked, uh, it made Batman look really silver agey. And then, of course, with the extra talking and stuff, uh, it just made it look like we had current Superman teaming up with Silver Age Batman, like on Earth one and a half, maybe, or something. So, anyway, that was kind of weird. Uh, moving on, though, uh, next up, we're going to talk about Superman number 237. This issue came out, uh, was also cover dated May 1971 and was released on March 16th uh, of the same year, obviously, uh, for 15 cents. And I really, really wish the comics could still be 15 cents. But anyway, uh, another issue of The Amazing New Adventures of Superman. Uh, the cover is by uh, Neil Adams, and what we see here is Superman from the back. We don't see his front, but we do see the S because of the cape. Uh, being attacked by these people with green faces and the looks like they're bagging up and there's even a little kid in there that looks like he's balding and they all just look really really messed up and they're telling him that they want him to leave the earth and if you're wondering why keep listening so uh, uh, the story of this is the enemy of earth hence the cover uh, the writer is Denny O'Neill the artist by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson and the editor is Julie Schwartz. And of course, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Oh, and I forgot to mention, previous issue. Uh, Superman created by Jerry Siegel, Joe Schuster. Batman created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Don't forget that part of it. Okay, so this story, Enemy of the Earth. We see a rocket, uh, an experimental rocket plane, uh, plummeting out of the sky, out of control. And Superman uh, is flying at super speed to try to catch it before it you know, crashes all over the countryside. He's able to get it just in the nick of time and is able to land it, uh, with, although he does note that there's smoke pouring out of the cockpit, so he better set it down and see and get the man outside of it before he roasts to death. Uh, but when he tries to pull him out, the, guy, uh, the pilot tries to get him to stay away and starts shooting him with a gun, which of course doesn't hurt the man, but he thinks the guy must have got, gone completely out of his mind. Uh, so... He pulls him out, uh, fighting all the way. Uh, finally gets him on the ground, but of course he's passed out because the strain was too much. Superman removes the helmet, and suddenly he sees this monstrosity with blonde hair. Uh, basically, it looks like the cover guys. It, he's got green skin with all these weird, I don't know, puffs. It's all puffy and green, and I guess it's supposed to be scaly. Uh, he Put it this way, he does not look like a human. Humanoid, but not human. Uh, so less than an hour later, Superman gets him to the Metropolis Hospital. Um, the doctor there tells him that they don't know if they can help him because honestly, they don't know what's wrong, what's causing this. Um, but um, Superman mentions that they went above the atmosphere, so maybe he found something from outer space. 
tells them to, uh, and leaves the hospital asking the doctor to keep him posted and that he can be reached through Galaxy Broadcasting. So Superman heads up uh, above the atmosphere, checks things out with his vision powers and realizes and sees that there doesn't seem to be anything unexpected. But uh, Superman suddenly realizes that since he helped the airman, he, got, he also could have been exposed to whatever caused the problem. So he goes to the radiation belt and takes what you would call a little bath, which apparently feels like cool water in July if you're invulnerable. So Superman drops to the Galaxy Broadcasting Building where he's met by Morgan Edge, who tells him that, uh, who really actually complains to him, kind of berates him, uh, because of the fact that Superman caught, uh, saved a government plane and his story, the story should have been Clark's to get for the afternoon TV news report, but obviously he was nowhere to be found. To which Clark calmly states that he actually did. He has an exclusive account and he needs to get to the studio so that he can put, go onto the news. So, inside the studio a little bit later, we see Clark uh, pro providing the news report on the news. Uh, when suddenly he starts feeling dizzy and using his X-ray vision, he sees that the sand creature from before um, is on a built the rooftop outside. So, concluding the newscast, Clark switches to Superman and heads out to the roof. He tries talking to him, but the sand creature does not make any response. Superman reaches out to touch him, and when he does, there's a silent explosion which sends Superman hurtling through the building uh, to the floor below. And uh, the one hand, the hand that actually touched them, uh, is actually glowing. Apparently, at least, at least it's drawn to look like it's glowing, and he can't feel it. It's gone completely numb. And when Superman walks over to apologize for the commotion, uh, because the workers didn't even turn around apparently, or check on him, he sees that all of them have apparently gone unconscious, and they are all suffering from the same weird condition that the airman was uh, suffered from. So Superman thinks that believes that he's the cause of the of this disease. Suddenly over the radio we get a radio broadcast from Lois uh, asking for help because their plane is being forced down into, the, into a valley but before Lois can tell where uh, the radio goes out. Superman realizes she needs help so he checks the logbook and finds out she's in South America this time uh, apparently on a different story because I guess she just gets a lot of frequent flyer, flyer miles and she's trying to get the story about a horde of army ants, which is weird. Um, but they're attacking, marching toward a populated valley. So Superman tries to figure out what to do. He's got the following things on his plane currently. He's got a disease from outer space, a plane crash, army ants, and the sand creature. So many problems, he can't think of where to begin. Sounds like something from Spider-Man, actually. So Superman, using his super brain and level-headed thinking, Decides what he needs to do. He has nothing else he can do there at the Daily Planet office, so he calls the hospital, tells them that they've got more people that have been affected, and to and warns them that uh, they probably want to wear some kind of protective gear. Next, he decides he's going to go check on the lowest situation, uh, hoping that he can do something from long range. As he's flying along, he get he is suddenly trailed by the sand creature again, and this time we see that there is color mixed in with the sand, and he's looking a little more firmer. Uh, so that worries Superman too. 
Uh, at that moment in Central America, which is interesting because I could have sworn they just said she was in South America, but that's you know that's a couple pages. Who knows what could have happened in that point? Uh, we find that the plane has crashed, uh, and the pilot apologizes, but it is due to uh, he forgot to put gasoline. He forgot to put uh, more gasoline in the tanks. Um, uh, he's about to provide some food for Lois uh, so that they can you know eat. And when suddenly the uh, thermos he has is shot out of his hand by bandits. Are you noticing a theme this, this month? Uh, more bandits attacking Lois and another gentleman. These are Mexican bandits. Or at least they look like it. And they're covered in bullets and they look yucky. And um, they decide they're going to use them for hostages. Superman, of course, spots this and realizes there's got to be some way he can help. But, to make matters worse, he also sees that the horde of army ants, which is pretty much eating and destroying everything on their path, is heading straight for Lois and all these other gentlemen. So Superman heads down to see if there's something he can do. Uh, he, can't, he doesn't know how he's going to help Lois at the moment, but he can take care of the ants because he doesn't mind affecting them. Um, but he can't. He doesn't think he's going to be able to do much with the creature following him, so he tries to tell him to go away. Apparently he doesn't, but we don't see him again for, for a while in the issue. Uh, Superman lands, and suddenly the uh, ants start walking right past him. Of course, they can't hurt him, but they start attacking him. And two ants happen to be uh, trying to attack his boob, and suddenly they grow to bigger than Superman. Uh, Superman is about to dis uh, dig a trench, uh, but is forced onto the ground because he's in an awkward position and he wasn't expecting to have the ants push him down. He gets back up at super speed, but um, sees he's about to be attacked by two giant army ants. He hits one with a left hand, with a left jab, and the other one with a right uppercut. And uh, the one he let hit with his left hand is doubling in size, but the one with the right hand isn't which makes no sense, but he can't take time to try to figure it out, so he flies the two ants out in space and throws them. Um, to, uh, yeah, in a way, so far enough away that they'll be away from Earth for eternity. So, now Superman has to figure out, okay, what's he going to do? He can't, he can't go back to Earth. He's making everything and everyone sick. It's just, he's a disease, basically. Um, so he thinks he decides he's gonna have to leave the earth, but he allows himself one last look at Lois and sees that the army ants are just about to where Lois and her, no, the pilot and the bandits are. Uh, the bandits become so concerned with the ants that the pilot decides he's gonna try to take the one bandit's gun. Unfortunately, he's spotted by one of the other bandits and clocked in the head, back of the head with the butt of a rifle, which knocks him out. The bandits decide they're going to run away. Uh, Lois decides she needs to run away too, but then her conscience gets the best of her and she realizes she can't just leave the guy here to die. So he wants, she's going to take her with him. Unfortunately, he's very heavy, so it's slow going and the army ants are catching up. But she, wants, she must be human and merciful and she can't give up hope. Meanwhile, we do see that at GBS, the doctor that Superman was with at the hospital earlier is trying to make an announcement uh, that uh, they've isolated the virus from space and they figured out a cure. 
uh, apparently by injecting people with uh, an injection of liquid freon, which I don't know is safe, but I forgot to look that up before I started this, so I'm sorry. Uh, but unfortunately, Superman can't hear it because he's in space, and he's decided he's trying to figure out what he's going to do. Lois is going to die. He has no way to help her without making her sick and, kill, and possibly killing her. Uh, when suddenly the sand creature shows up, and Superman realizes that the one part of the creep of his hand that when he blah, 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 there was his right hand that he hit the ant that didn't grow. That was also the hand he used to touch the sand creature earlier. She so realized. Maybe he could get rid of the entire virus with the sand creature's help. So he slowly walks, uh, slowly glides up to the sand creature, trying not to make any sudden moves, and suddenly goes up and grabs him like in a hug. And there's a giant uh, explosion. In fact, it's described as the fabric of the cosmos uh, seemingly splitting in a, in a dazzling cataclysm. And Superman is thrown back uh, so fast that he's actually, the friction is actually causing him to uh, form flames around his body as he crashes to the earth near Lois. We see the crater uh, just kind of sitting there in silence because craters don't really move. Excuse me. Because uh, craters don't really move. And suddenly Superman slowly climbs up. And uh, Lois is like, Superman, what's wrong with you? But Superman says he doesn't have time to explain, just needs her to hold on to his cape. And he picks up the pilot and runs as fast as he can. Uh, unfortunately, he can't fly now uh, due to his contact with the sand creature, but he can leap over a mountain with a single bound. On the other side of that same mountain, we see the bandits, Superman and company land. And they decide they're going to take down Superman, so they shoot him. Fortunately, it's just with a pistol, but Superman can actually feel the slug bounce off his chest. He grabs the gun and tries to bend the barrel. It is an effort, but he's able to do so. And with, a nut, with even more effort, he's able to knock out three bandits. With everyone, sa safely, uh, everyone to safety, he sees the sand creature land behind a rock. Superman goes over and asks him some more questions to find out who he is. Uh, knowing that this time the sand creature can respond, all he says is that um, he's all he does is explain in a monologue type fashion that uh, he has taken Superman's powers temporarily, and he's able to temporarily negate one of his powers temporarily. Uh, at this instant, Superman is weakened but will not recover entirely, and when he does, uh, the sand creature shall be his equal, his exact equal. And when Superman asks who he is, all he says is, I am a being woven from your mind, your heart, and your soul. Can you not see? I am you. And I fear that we may not both survive. And, of course, the little caption says, Coming, the end of Superman as we know him. The battle must take, make history because it could be his last battle. And that's the end. So this is actually one of the better stories. Uh, from Denis O'Neill's run so far on the Superman book. Uh, it's, I don't know how to put it into words, it's just a really good story. Uh, it's reprinted in Kryptonite Nevermore, and it's the only place it's ever been reprinted. Uh, so that's a, still a lot cheaper than probably than finding the issues separately, of course. Uh, my notes for this issue, uh, on page four, 
I like that they've up, updated everything. Superman can reach through GPS now, since, which makes sense because he used to be able to be reached through the Daily Planet. The planet has been bought by GPS, so it makes sense that GPS is where we get a reach now. Uh, so that was nice. Um, you know, and I noticed that if this was a Marvel book, uh, going uh, going into that radiation bath would actually make things worse. Then again, I guess they actually do. Hmm. But also, also uh, he takes just the radiation bath. Now that might I can understand how that might take care of whatever's contamin whatever contamination uh, Superman's got on him might take care of it. But I would think that. Afterwards, he'd kind of be covered in radioactive particles, therefore making him even more dangerous than he was anyway. You know, that, yeah, it's not good. Although, the first person he does see is Morgan Edge, who could have lit, probably could have lit a cigar on Superman, on Clark. But, uh, at this point, Morgan Edge is not really a good person and probably wouldn't be bad to have him die of radiation. Um, Page five. Uh, this is actually the first time we see Super, uh, Clark as an actual news anchor behind the desk. A couple issues ago, we did see him behind the desk, uh, starting to deliver a uh, editorial. <coughs> uh, now this is for apparently an afternoon newscast, but he's still a news anchor, and this is the first time that we see that in the Bronze Age, uh, which actually is the only time we see him as a news anchor. So forget I said that last part. Uh, page thirteen and fourteen. Um, he says he doesn't mind affecting the ants, which, okay, they're lower life form and everything. But we just had an issue, uh, an episode or two back, where Superman and Supergirl considered that their vow to not take any life, uh, even when he was talking about some form of tree creature, which was kind of an artificially created form of life. And they could kill that, even though they probably uh, did when they took it into space. But he has no problem affecting or possibly killing ants, which really are life. Again, I can understand it, but I also think it's a little off. Um, but that might just be me. Um, he also and tries to help, uh, instead of trying to help them or uh, doing something with them until they could be helped, he just throws the army ants out into space. Now, granted, they're army ants. And they're giant army ants, which means they could just cause more damage. So I can understand that. And things with Lois, uh, he didn't have much time before he had to get back to Lois and all this other stuff. But still, he just basically threw them out in space, which if that didn't kill him, he mentions that the size would, kill, would end them. So basically, he's just leaving them to die. It just isn't really Superman-ish. Uh, page 20, watching him um, as a fireball returning and then crashing into the earth reminds me of uh, part of Superman Returns. So I thought that was kind of cool. On page 21, um, we see him have, he can't fly, but he can run fast and leap over a mountain in a single bound, which seems to be about the power level he had it when he was in the Golden Age. So that's kind of cool. Uh, this is his first significant power loss of the story. Um, I don't want to spoil ahead, but it, it, it gets worse. Um, that uh, overall, though, I thought the art was a vast improvement since last issue, uh, when I didn't think the art was very good at all. And uh, this is actually the first major development in this Sandman saga story since 234, uh, Superman 234, which was when uh, we actually had confirmation that it was the creature that kept making Superman feel dizzy and weak. 
So uh, at least that's what I at least I think it is the big, the first major confirmation. We the next issue I believe we did learn that you know it, it's making Superman weaker, but it wasn't a big power loss. And even last issue Superman seemed to be pretty much at full power, and it, and even at the beginning of this issue he seemed pretty much at full power. But by the end uh, he's I mean literally golden age power levels. Plus we see a big change in the sand creature. He's gone from um, a somewhat formless being of sand to basically being Superman made of sand and he's, now he's even got color to him uh, the reds and yellows and blues and the skin color and everything I mean actually he looks like a very sketchy Superman drawing now so uh, yeah so this, I mean, this this is where we get the next step in the story it's, it's almost like the first couple of issues were set up this is the middle part, and then things will get even, you know, and trust me, things get even worse for Superman for the rest of this arc. So, uh, that brings us to the end of that issue. Uh, I'm going to play some promos here. When we come back, we've got Action Comics. Coming October 31st, 2010, Superman Forever Radio a new weekly podcast which will focus on Superman and his family of comics, movies, television shows, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Featuring the latest news, reviews, and the latest and classic adventures of the Man of Steel and an in-depth look at a variety of topics throughout Superman's 70-plus years of history. Join host J. David Weeder every Sunday for Superman Forever Radio, coming October 31st, 2010. For more information, go to supermanforever.com. Hi, my name is Billy Hogan, host of the Superman Fan Podcast, which explores the world of Superman and the many creators who have added to his legacy over the decades. Episodes will feature creator biographies or highlight some of their top stories they have created as well as their top characters. Other episodes will feature topics appropriate to the holiday or the time of the year. For instance, Valentine's Day will feature stories about the women in Superman's life, April Fool's Day will feature some of the bizarre Superman Silver Age stories or some of the imaginary stories that have been published. Halloween will feature some of the scary Superman stories or some of his strange transformations and, of course, some of the Christmas Superman stories. The website can be found at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com the blog is supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com and you can send email to supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. I also have a spoiler-free comic book review blog of the titles I read every week, which can be found at mypolllist.blogspot.com and you can send email about this blog to mypolllist at gmail.com. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman.
like a job for Superman. Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at two truefreaks.libson.com. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com. And now we're back. Uh, next up, we have, and the last of uh, the last book for this month is Action Comics number four hundred, um, which should be a huge milestone issue, but really isn't much of one. It's basically uh, there's no extra pages. It's the same size uh, book that we normally have with two stories, and it has no really. In my opinion, neither one of the stories are really special anniversary stories. So they mentioned that it's a special 400th anniversary issue. There's even a caption at the beginning of the story saying it's uh, a super adventure, soon to become a classic. But it's not really that much that special. In fact, when I first saw it, I thought it was an imaginary story. But it turns out it's not. Uh, again, the uh, this, this is actually Comics 400. Uh, it was the cover date of May's 1971 with a release date of March 30th, 71. Uh, another 15-cent cover by Neil Adams, uh, which actually shows uh, Superman walking into a room. And inside the room, we see a young man at a desk, who, by the way, looks nothing like the young man in the story, uh, wearing a Superman costume as well. Uh, but half, And he's reading a book, but half of him is turned into some kind of gorilla, it looks like. And Super, the, Superman says, my son, is he man or beast? Now, nothing like this really happens. This actually looks like Superman just caught him taking care of some kind of business uh, here. But, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, the story is called My Son, Is He Man or Beast? And the, the writer on this is Leo Dorfman. The art is by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. The editor is Murray Boltonoff. And course, again, Superman was created by Jerry Sickle and Joe Schuster. And we start off at the, uh, at the funeral of a famous European scientist uh, named Jan Nagy, who was a, a, a guy named Jan Nagy, I guess Nagy, N-A-G-Y. So I'm going with Nagy, could be Nagy. Um, yeah. Anyway, Superman's at the funeral because apparently they were friends. This gentleman uh, is still act, was actually pretty young. And last year won the Nobel Nobel uh, Prize for radiobiology. Uh, at the end of the service, Superman goes to offer his condolences to his son Gregor, but Gregor doesn't want it, uh, especially from Superman. And Superman tries to find out what's wrong. They've been friends since he was a kid, uh, but 
Now Gregor says he doesn't want to be Superman's friend. Um, Superman goes at, starts to go after him, but um, uh, I guess it's a lawyer uh, asks Superman to come with him for the reading of Dr. Navy's will because he's mentioned in it. So Superman says he'll be there. And just a little bit later, we see people in the in the study. I guess it is uh, whatever the room is. Um, and we get to the important part where Superman is named guardian of his son Gregor, uh, asking that he treats the boy as his own, which of course upsets Gregor because he wants nothing to do with Superman. And if he could, he would tear Superman apart. But of course, the gentleman reading the will says he'd have to be a super gorilla for that. And suddenly Gregor is like, yes, a gorilla, if only I were. But then he rushes out. Superman tries to go after him so he can talk to him, sees uh, Gregor run up the stairs to his room. Uh, as Superman turns the corner, we see Gregor literally disappear through the door into his room. So, because Superman does not believe in the right to privacy, Superman uses his x-ray vision to see what Gregor's doing in there, and sees him turn into a gorilla, ripping apart his tux that he's wearing. Um, and we find out that somehow Superman did this to him. Uh, uh, Superman eventually pins him down and causes him to calm down and he switches, he turn, uh, Gregor slowly changes back to a human and then explains what happened. Apparently, several years ago, uh, when Gregor was just a young boy, um, an atomic furnace, which reminds me of last issue, but anyway, atomic furnace, uh, which Dr. Nagy was working on, cracked, uh, and it contains metamorphon, which is an artificial element he invented, and if it if the furnace explodes, everyone within miles may become evolutionary freaks. So Superman decides he's going to hurl it into space, but he, uh, the doctor explains there's no time. It'll explode any second, and the radiation could spread in the atmosphere to affect every living creature on Earth, and that only hydrogen can slow down and halt that reaction. Superman realizes that there's plenty of that inside the swimming pool, because it's H2O, and uh, throws the thing into the water. Uh, it explodes, I guess. We don't actually see it, but the steam given off by the pool uh, is could also be radioactive. And his son, uh, Dr. Nagy's son, Gregor, is out there wearing just a bathing suit. Uh, so Superman grabs him in his super cape and flies off with him. Uh, unfortunately, it turns out that that time in the radioactive steam turned him into, uh, did cause a change. He didn't realize it at first. Um, but uh, one day when he, his music teacher was coming over to the house to, I guess, tutor him, um, Gregor just wished he could vanish or disappear. And suddenly he did. And once the music teacher left, he came back to, you know, he could see himself again. He doesn't know how he did it, but it happened. Um, then later on, one evening, while he was being chased by a school bully, he wished he could fly away like some creature of the night, and suddenly, and horrifically, instead of disappearing, Gregor changed into a giant man-bat. Who would have thought? And flies under the bridge he was standing on. Of course, the bully is look, looking around, but um, he just hangs there upside down. And over the years, he's turned into. We find out that he's turned into some, to some other beastly monstrosities, like a snake, a wolf an alligator, and a squirrel. And Gregor blames all of this on Superman, that he did this to him. 
And of course, as a, uh, before Superman can really say anything back to him, um, a young woman named Denise is outside calling for to, calling to Gregor. But we find out that she loves him, but Gregor doesn't want to marry her because of the fact that he's a hideous creature. And she mentions something about how Gregor's like an angry animal, which apparently somehow this triggers another change in Gregor. So he goes to hide and says he needs that she needs to leave and goes hide in some bushes, where he turns into some kind of tiger, a ferocious tiger, and begins to attack Denise. But Superman gets in the way and saves her, and he transforms back into Gregor. And Superman decides, you know what, I uh, I am going to help you lose your powers. Not lose, use. He's going to teach him how to use his powers. And uh, so Gregor decides, okay, he'll take him up on that offer, teach him how to control his powers for good, because he feels Superman at least owes him that much. So, a uh, few days later, we find uh, Superman is summoned to a bank, which is vault with loot belonging to a crime syndicate. Uh, they figured Superman would be called, so it's been booby-trapped to explode if super strength, heat vision, or x-ray vision are used against it. All right, uh, so Superman realizes there is a way to get through there. So he brings in Gregor, um, and who turns into a ghost and slips through the thing and then opens the vault from the inside. And when asked what his name is, Superman decides he's going to be called Changeling. Uh, days later, in remote Africa, uh, some ivory poachers are attacked by a mammoth elephant and uh, leave and decide they better get out of there. Uh, and we see Superman fly down as the elephant turns back into Gregor. And Superman congratulates him on the job well done. They'll probably never, they'll probably stop the poaching for good and flies him back home. Uh, after uh, we, Gregor later uses his powers to snoop on Superman and eventually confronts him in Clark Kent's apartment as Superman is switching back into Clark. So now he knows his secret. Um, and of course, Gregor's being a bit of a jerk. Uh, but days later, Superman decides he really he still needs to help him, so he flies him to his fortress. He tells him that you know, he one day he may need a headquarters of his own, but for now, he can use the fortress. So, uh, out of curiosity, Gregor presses one button and turns out that the he hit a remote control switch to dismantle, uh, to, which activates the dismantling circuits on the space station he built, which I don't know why you'd have that with one button, but it's comic book science in the early 70s. So, Superman flies off to the space to try to salvage it. Unfortunately, while he's gone, uh, there's a call to Superman that submarine explorers are trapped in Bathy Scaf, uh, miles below the surface in Japan. So uh, Gregor wishes he had Superman's powers, which and suddenly he does, and flies over, realizes that he could take care of it, uh, Superman's gone. So first he heads over to this closet where Superman robot works, and keeps his Superman robots, and wants to go get an indestructible cape, or I'm sorry, indestructible costume, and we actually have a note about the fact that the robots are have been deactivated due to what the events of World's Finest 202, so that's pretty cool. Uh, and wearing one of these indestructible costumes, uh, Super Breaker flies off, uses his X-ray vision to locate the vessel, picks it up with his super strength, 
and um, take, begins to take it back to the surface. But before he can get it all the way, his powers start fading, and the his body reverts to normal, and the water pressure pretty much caves in his ribs. But uh, Superman is able to streak in and help just in the nick of time, and gets the sub all the way back to the surface as he flies off with Gregor. Tries to take him to a hospital, but Gregor says there's no point. I'm dying anyway. Just take me somewhere uh, because he wants to speak to him. And he basically, with his dying breath, he thanks Superman and wishes uh, and is glad, proud to have had a father like him as he dies. And suddenly, uh, because of the radiation and stuff, uh, Gregory's body pretty much turns to dust, leaving Superman holding just an empty super costume. And that's the end of the story. Uh, now this actually wasn't one of the worst stories uh, I've seen in the action. It's actually a pretty good one. It, it is very Silver Agey, especially with some of the comments that get made, uh, just the way they talk and stuff. But um, I thought it was not a bad story. Very heart-wrenching, uh, heart but I actually felt kind of involved. Gregor was really starting to pick me off partway through the story. Just, he was just being a complete jerk. But um, I do have a couple, literally only a couple notes on this one. Page 9. Uh, I like how they call him Changeling. And basically his power, other than the fact that he can disappear, is that up until he turns to basically from Superman at the end, uh, his power was that he could change into animals, which is basically what Beast Boy do, could, can do. And I thought it was interesting that Beast Boy becomes Changeling when he joins the new Teen Titans about 10 years after the story. So that was interesting. Page 12, uh, like I just mentioned, there is a reference to the World's Finest issue from earlier this episode, which was cool. And uh, I also noted that um, Gregor wanted to get an indestructible costume from one of the robots. Now, I've read there are stories uh, that back me up on this, but there is only one indestructible costume. The idea and the origin of the Superman costume which I believe was in a Superboy story from back during the Golden Age at some point. I'm not exactly sure the issue. But uh, the origins go that, of course, uh, when Superman Kal-El was put in the rocket to leave Krypton, he was wrapped in a red, yellow, and blue Superman blanket. But red, yellow, blue blankets. Those blankets became as indestructible as Superman inside Earth's atmosphere. Uh, as a young super tot, um, Kent's realized that he was just destroying all the play suits that they had made for him. And when they real, when there was a fire in the attic of their house, not just a small one, uh, Clark was able to blow up the flames, but uh, Kent's realized that the only things that didn't get damaged in the fire were the three super blankets. And they did some tests with a shotgun and, and a fire and maybe the rake, uh, and realized that, this, that the, you know, the blankets were just as indestructible. So they, uh, so Ma can't or Martha, basically unweaved all the blankets and reweaved them into a small little playsuit for little Clark, and tricking him, uh, they called they got him to use his heat vision to cut the threads, which is all well and good. And he had a little super suit that did that was pretty much indestructible and he could play almost as rough as he wanted to. Uh, and once he got old enough, they put the play suit away and kind of forgot about it. Well, once he got old enough, uh, he uh, Clark 
came to the to the realization they wanted to use and of course talking to his parents uh they realized that he wanted to use his powers to help people but he would need a co uh, he would need a costume and the costume would need to be as indestructible as he was so that gave the kids the idea so they unraveled the whole super play suit plus uh got all the extra material that they hadn't used on the play suit and basically created the costume that we know of as the Superman costume. The blue shirt, the blue pants, and uh, the underwear on the outside, and the red cape with the yellow S on it. Uh, and that, that was that costume. Uh, the belt came from like a, a seat belt from inside the, the ship. Uh, and the boots were from some of the, I guess the kind of like the leather, uh, which somehow in the first story where he was able to use his uh, powers to to kind of mold into boot shape, but obviously I don't think that would work since it's Kryptonian too. But um, in any event, excuse me, that's where his costume came from. And of course, we learn later that on his Clark Kent classes, um, the he was able to find two pieces of the window of the ship to use as lenses so that his glasses don't melt every time he needs to secretly use his heat, his heat vision or something. So that's basically the origin of, of the pre-crisis origin of Superman's costume. There was only one. As for the robot costumes, they were copies. Uh, I guess made with regular earth fabric. They might have been treated uh, to over, uh, so that they wouldn't burn up with friction. I uh, Superman did treat his Clark Kent clothes with some kind of formula to keep them from, um, you know, burning up whenever he had to move with super speed, which is why as Clark uh, in the Super Bowl, in, he was a super boy. Basically, all of Clark's outfits was a, like a red sweater and a white shirt and blue pants. And as Clark, except for right now, because they're kind of pretending they don't mention this, but apparently the... Um, Chemicals also caused all of Clark's suits to be blue pants, blue jacket, red, white tie, white shirt. And that's why that happened. That's why all that was going on. So uh, these robots would not have actually had an indestructible costume. That's a long rant to just tell you that, that part of that one page was wrong. Anyway. Um, overall, though, I like I said, this was a pretty good story. It was very silver agey, but not bad. Uh, not too silver agey, um, and which is pr the one thing I thought was cool because, like I said, I thought this was an, imag an imaginary story. Uh, Superman actually has an adopted son for a little bit. Uh, he never gets mentioned again, but he basically actually is a father for a short time, and uh, so I thought that was actually pretty cool. And uh, this issue, before I get to the next story, um, does have a letter written by Bob Rosakis from Elmont, New York. And as many of you may know, Bob Rosakis, uh, later on in the 70s, actually becomes, uh, or not becomes, but uh, he actually ends up working for DC Comics. He submits these, he started submitting puzzles, uh, trivia like crosswords and stuff, using uh, knowledge from DC history. And... Um, eventually uh, got hired on a, as a, on a professional basis. He later became known as the Answer Man. Uh, during the late 70s and early 80s, he, uh, create, he actually wrote up what is known as the a Daily Planet page, 
which um, how do I explain this? They're similar to today to uh, some, like basically putting all the ads in one spot um, or kind of like just updating you on things. Basically, it's supposed to look like the front page of the Daily Planet newspaper, obviously. And um, it usually has one feature with a, with a picture, which is usually the cover for the issue, uh, and explains the current, the story that's coming out. It's going to be presented in an issue of one of the DC comics that month. Uh, tells you the, cre the whole creative team, uh, gives you a synop brief synopsis of what's going to go on in the story, tells you when it's going to be available. Then he uh, had one section that literally listed all the sections of, um, not all the sections, but literally listed all the comics coming out that month. And then there was usually a section that had a little, a short little comic uh, drawn by Fred Hembeck, I believe it was. Uh, which is, you, they were usually pretty fine. They would usually star the actual DC characters that John his way. And then um, then there was one section that was called uh, Answer Man, Ask the Answer Man. People, uh, people would be able to submit questions and he would answer them. Uh, a lot of the times the questions were simple questions like how much is this comic worth and he tells you how much it's worth in good condition and that kind of stuff. Sometimes someone would ask a question that he actually had the would actually provide a short answer for, like uh, how does Superman get his powers? And he would explain that because the yellow sun and Earth's lighter gravity, or Earth's gravity, or lighter gravity, and all the other stuff. But uh, he had he was the answerman. He also eventually became an actual writer for the books, uh, for several books. He wrote uh, especially backups. He had a lot of backups. He wrote. He wrote some. Um, backup stories in several issues of, I want to say they were detective comics, which actually eventually led, uh, which actually at one point um, was a multi-part backup story involving several different characters that eventually led to uh, the main story, and I think it was in an issue of Detective that was actually drawn by Marshall Rogers, and that story actually was uh, is how Marshall Rogers kind of got the job to draw the Steve Englehart issues of Detective. This might have been now this was definitely an action or brave and bold jump, but um, that's how it basically is how Marshall Rogers was noticed enough to get the uh, job of drawing the Steve Englehart issues of over in Detective in the late 70s. Um, he wrote he in the late 80s he does write a miniseries called uh, Superman: The Secret Years, which basically is a four-issue miniseries to try to describe or to try to explain. The story of how Superboy became Superman, uh, definitively. Uh, but he he does a whole lot of other backup stories uh, later on in the in this decade and in the early 80s, and eventually does do a few co uh, of the main stories. So he becomes pretty prolific. In fact, in fact, in the mid 70s, I believe it was, he might have been the answer man at this point. But um, before he actually started as a writer, he actually. Uh, was in charge of the supermobile, I believe it's called the Super DC Mobile, which was basically supposed to be a um, kind of like an ice cream truck, but instead of ice cream, it sold comics. It wasn't really a successful venture, but it was a, a DC experiment in the mid 70s, and he was actually kind of in charge of it for a while. So, uh, and he was there uh, and met. Christopher Reeve during the Superman contest during the first Superman movie, where he got where uh, Superman picked the name of two people to I think was to be in the Superman movie or to film a scene for the movie or something like that. So um, 
But yeah, he was at DC and got to meet Christopher Reeve for that. So Bob Rosakis becomes a pretty pretty big name in DC uh, for a while there. And um, he actually writes a letter, and it says, Dear Editor, two months ago I wrote and asked you to follow up your Swan Anderson biographies with those of your authors. Or should I say author? Last month I asked for a series of stories on the Fortress of Solitude. Action 396 has both. The Super Panhandler of Metropolis looks like a goodie of an imaginary story, and I'm looking forward to next issue's conclusion. As for the invaders from nowhere, I never suspected the origin of the Karanahans, and the phony red sun was a neat trick. One thing I wonder about, so far I wrote and requested something twice, and you gave it to us both times. Suppose I were to ask you for a million dollars. Would it be in the future issue? And the editor, who uh, I'm assuming is probably the assistant editor, which I, uh, but the response is no, because it was already in another in another issue of a few months back. Remember the Midas of Metropolis. So nice, quick comeback, nice little letter. So in the course of this, the, just these few months of the of this podcast that we've been covering, we've seen Martin Pasco with a few letters and Bob Rosakis with. At least this one. So it's nice. I, I, I kind of like it to see the professionals, uh, the people, well, those who are later professionals, um, showing up in like letter columns as fans before they became, you know, comic professionals. The backup story is called The Duel of Doom. Uh, this one was written by Jeff Brown, who is Leo Dorfman, with art by Swan Anderson. Swan Anderson? Kurt Anderson? No. Wow, Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. It's called The Duel of Doom. We start off seeing uh, Superman apprehending Brainiac and Supergirl flying. Uh, this is outside the fortress. Superman apprehends Brainiac while Supergirl flies down to catch the bottle city of Candor before it can crash. Uh, we, f we see that they're really just watching a history tape. These students are being shown this at the University of Candor inside the bottle city. Outside, two of the students... Um, Yeah. Uh, two students named Yalura and Arvor uh, have this little discussion. Apparently they're a couple, but he tries to say that guys are better than girls, and she tries to say that girls are better than guys. Uh, using the example of the video, because Superman caught, taught Supergirl everything she knows, and stopped Brainiac, but Supergirl was one that actually caught the city, so whatever. So they decide to grab a little contest. To pass the final exams, they have to perform a superior achievement in their fields. She's an archaeologist, and he's an electronicon. So he says, you've got a deal. And a few days later, they head off. She goes to do some archaeological stuff at the uh, Crystal Hills of Candor. And... Uh, it's a restricted area with entrance forbidden, but she goes through anyway. And apparently that we learned that this area was sacred in prehistoric times. Using a power impactor blaster, she starts excavating and enters, and it looks like the walls are lit, uh, I guess because they're crystals, something is illuminating them. And she's found uh, a quote-unquote find of the century with hieroglyphics and demon-worshipping cult stuff and all kinds of cool stuff. And as she continues exploring, we see back in the heart of Kandor, uh, we see Arvor flying around. And we, using the um, exposition police, 
uh, we hear the crowd saying that he has no, that, is it a bird? Is it an aircraft? It can't be Superman. He has no powers here in Candor. And they say that it's Arbor. And he's taking his final exam. He's demonstrating his latest invention. But anti-gravity is nothing new here in Candor, which we obviously know from the last few issues of Superman. Uh, but what they don't realize is he might be flying around using anti-gravity, but what he's testing is his infrascope, which has, prevents him from being able to see uh, using his eyes, but allows him to um, fly, uh, use kind of like um, infrared vision uh, to see, kind of the same, similar to the way uh, bats uh, are able to see here on Earth. Because when you're on an alien world, and someone's trying to describe something, they always make sure to just to compare it to something that you would know about on Earth. And uh, fortunately, the power pack on his anti-grav belt is defective, and he plunges into a lake below. And uh, and Aldi, the between the anti-grav belt and the equipment he's wearing, he's kind of weighed down. Uh, by the time he finally gets it off, gets the equipment off of him, ex well, except for the helmet he's wearing, um, he's too far down to swim to the surface. Fortunately, he spots uh, a glow in an opening on, the, on the, one of the rock walls. Uh, open, uh, climbing out of the water, he finds that there's air, and he's literally in an air, an underground chamber with light in it. Sound familiar? Uh, we see back to Yalura. We see her walking through, and suddenly, uh, one, we see one of the cult statues shining what basically looks like a giant monster hologram. Yar Arbor hears her screams and eventually is able to find her and it's not uh, and while she appears to uh, think that it's a real monster and um, he doesn't fall for it for a second and takes a rock and throws it at the actual uh, statue destroying the mechanism inside. Unfortunately shortly afterwards um, all the light in the tunnel goes out. Apparently, whatever was powering up that machine also was causing all the cavern light, all of the all of the caverns to light up. So it's suddenly dark. So the two of them be believe that they're stuck there, but at least they get to be together for the rest of eternity. Until she, uh, until Yulera feels the what the pack that Arvor's wearing, and says, "Hey, wait a minute! Can't your infrared goggle stuff help?" And he's like, oh, duh. So he puts that on and basically leads them out of the cavern. And days later at Candor University, we see Superman and Supergirl parachute in with people, again, uh, expositioning that they use their shrinking rate to reduce themselves temporarily so they could attend the graduation. And they have to use parachutes to drop into our world because they have no powers here in Candor. Because, you know, if you don't know that, Somehow you need to know that. And later at the ceremony, Superman and Supergirl present both of them with the statue of well, with the Superman and Supergirl statue, uh, because they're finest. To, because they prove that the finest scientific achievements are not due to rivalry but teamwork. And that's it. I do have a few more notes on this story because this is not near as fun as the first one. On page two. I think it's kind of funny that a society that's supposed to be as advanced as Candor is not immune to the whole battle of the sexes thing. Um, you would think they would be, but they aren't. Uh, page three, um, Yalura sneaks, 
basically sneaks into a restricted area. Unfortunately, uh, for a restricted area, the whoever is in charge of security needs to like be fired before now, because we have apparently we have an open opening in the fence, not guarded by security, not guarded by any kind of equipment like motion detectors or heat sensors or anything. Just an opening in the fence. Anyone could walk through. You could probably drive a truck through it. She could have driven her whatever her vehicle is through it without any problem, but she walks. Page four. Uh, again, like I pointed out, we get exposition by thanks to random people in the different crowds in the city explaining what exactly is going on in case we can't see it. Uh, fortunately, well, unfortunately, this is not the last time we'll see this. Um, it is used a lot as a writing tool in the Bronze Age. So we will see this quite a bit. Um, page six. Um, apparently, even though they, you would think a super scientific society like Candor wouldn't believe in such things, Yolora uh, uh, believes it's really a monster. It's kind of weird. Uh, page six and eight. Um, Basically, they're supposed to have used teamwork. Basically, their teamwork was him knocking out the machinery and then her remembering that uh, he had the or finding the device on it, on him and reminding him that he has it so that he can lead her out. That's not really teamwork. That's mostly him and the one. Page eight. Uh, again, panel four with the exposition of Supergirl and Superman flying down or parachuting down. I understand every issue could be someone's first, but really, duh, that whole panel. And page five, um, it makes sense, of course, that they both win, because you can't have a winner in a story that's supposed to be dealing with this kind of stuff. But technically, they didn't actually make any achievement together. Basically, uh, what happened was she found it on, she found the, the archaeological stuff on her own. His device worked on its own. He was testing it. The only teamwork they had was, again, her remembering that he was wearing it and him leading her out. That's not really teamwork. Yeah. Uh, but overall, I forgot to write overall notes, and these are the notes from last issue. So anyway, overall, I did not find this to be the best story in the world. Uh, it kind of goes against what they were doing. There's not really any teamwork here, in my opinion. Uh, he does his thing, she does her thing. They both pretty much make their have their achievements before we even get partway through the story. The only reason they're alive is because she remembered that what he, she realized what he was wearing and reminded him of what it could do, so he let her out. That's basically all it was. Um, so I wouldn't call that teamwork at all. And uh, yeah, that's basically it. Um, I do like that there is the cool thing at the beginning is that at the beginning of the issue, although her her legs are colored blue, the the beginning part of the issue, uh, which should be our first clue that we're watching something from the past when they're fighting Brainiac, is that Supergirl's got her old costume. Um, although, like I said, that for some reason they colored her legs blue, so basically it looks like she's wearing Superman's costume, but has a more shapely figure. And of course, by the end, she's got that weird 70s costume with the weird belt thing and the red gloves and the literally thigh-high boots and all that crap. So uh, that's it for action. <clears throat>
and that does it for the stories. Uh, this uh, next up is, of course, uh, Elsewhere in the DC Multiverse. Uh, thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics at DC, www.dcindexes.com. And using the famous Time Machine uh, link, uh, we can see what else was on sale in March of 71. Uh, we have DC Special number 12, starring the Viking Prince, uh, which actually looks like it also stars other people. They just don't actually mention it. Uh, it'll come up. It also features The Silent Knight, Robin Hood, and The Golden Gladiator. Yeah, but Viking Prince gets three stories in there. We have our Our Army at War featuring Sergeant Rock number three uh, two thirty two. We have Wonder Woman number one ninety four, where it looks like she's about to get married to a prince at gunpoint. So that's interesting. We have Batman two thirty one with a man who saw with his fingers. Uh, yeah. Uh, we hit Flash number 206, in which a girl gets 24 hours of immortality and also features an Elastic Man backup. We get DC Super DC Giant S24, which is all stories featuring Supergirl. And uh, as an extra, they have new Supergirl costumes designed by the readers. So that's pretty cool. Uh, we get Tomahawk, or actually Son of Tomahawk, number 134. And I'm noticing all these old school, like the war and Indian comics and stuff, the non-superhero comics, but still heroic comics, involve a Joe Kubert cover, while the superhero ones are mostly Neil Adams. Interesting. Uh, we get Superboy, number 174, which is a giant 64-page book. Uh, for 25 cents, which is basically all reprints. Uh, so that's pretty cool. We get House of Mystery number 192 with a really freaking cool Neil Adams cover. Uh, and we get Justice League of America number 189 called The Most Dangerous Dreams of All, and where the cover actually features uh, the reader to uh, says the story is all about you it's your turn to be either superman or batman and it says it's the most unusual jll jla story ever where you are the hero and villain so i don't know how that works but that definitely has my interest peaked uh we do get our fighting forces number 131 uh where i guess it looks like the war's over so they're not the loser the losers anymore or maybe because they won that they can't be called losers. I'm not sure how that works. Uh, we get Young Love, number 186. And uh, we get a little feature in this book, uh, Does He Love You? Analyze His Handwriting. Boy. We get The Adventures of Jerry Lewis, number 124. And this appears to be the final issue of the book. Even though it's America's Funniest Comic Mag, I guess it's the only one because it's the last issue. And... Does, that is an interesting cover because he's uh, Jerry is driving the wrong way on a racetrack, about to have a head-on collision with about 70 other cars. We get uh, Jack Kirby's Mr. Miracle number two, and we get another cool cover where he's got to be an escape artist again uh, because he's well, 
you just have to see the cover yourself. Uh, we do get Gigantic Strange Adventures, which is another 64-page book for 25 cents, uh, featuring Adam Strange, The Atomic Knights, and other science fiction stories. Uh, we get Falling in Love, number 123. And uh, on this one, Carol Andrews answers your love problems. In addition to the, you know, the comic book part of the book. Uh, we get Phantom Stranger, number 13. And that actually looks pretty interesting. We have a little kid basically looking like she's trying to pretend she... It looks, I'm guessing it's a little girl because it's a pink outfit, but it looks like it's just a little kid uh, trying to pretend he or she is like Sergeant Rock. And um, she, uh, he or she goes bang, bang with her finger. And apparently it kills the adult that... Or the adult is acting like he's been killed, and behind them is uh looks like a, supposed to be a computer screen with a eight bit kind of dot matrixy kind of looking version of the Phantom Stranger in it. Reminds me of the cover of S Superman number two, volume uh, Superman volume two number two, uh, where uh, the Superman's identity is revealed to Lex Luthor, and Lex Luthor doesn't end up believing it. But the cover actually has like a dot matrix kind of pixelated version of uh, half Superman face, half Clark Kent face. Looks very similar here. I can see maybe this was part of like, the inspiration for that. We get Teen Titans number 33. We get the Three Mouseketeers number 7, which is the final issue of this book. So apparently we're running out of the funny books now. Uh, do these love stories keep going? Yep, looks like it. Uh, next up, we get Date with Debbie, number 15, uh, which is another 25-cent book for 64 pages, all new, and looks like Archie is in D.C. for some reason. And uh, this one, uh, we, we have an interview with Marlo Thomas of That Girl, and we actually find out how much of her is really That Girl. Uh, we have Girls Love Stories, number 159, uh, with where I can't read the name on it, but someone tells you, do you know when to kiss? And you also learn the do's and don'ts of dating and, and all that kind of fun stuff. So, you know, make sure you read that. We get Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 110. And for some reason, Lois is dressed up as an Indian. Saying it's his, it, and is carrying a baby and is saying that it is hers. And there's also a Rose and Thorn story. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, Supergirl, number, or I'm sorry, it's Adventure Comics featuring Supergirl, number 406, with a Supergirl story called Suspicion. And apparently someone knows that uh, Supergirl and Linda Danvers are one and the same, and how knows how to prove it. The art on this cover is by Mike Sikowski and Dick Giordano, and I'm going to tell you right now, it is not my favorite artwork at all. And then we have Detective Comics number 411, which has the story Into the Den of Death Dealers, which is one of the uh, stories, of, which is a Rachel Ghoul Batman story. It's one of the, it's, I believe it's the last Rachel Ghoul ish story before they actually introduced him, but this issue does uh, show Talia Al Ghoul, I believe. Yes, it does. It's her first appearance of Talia and the League of Assassins, although no, it's not. 
but it is the first appearance of Talia al Ghul. And that's it. Uh, it's a pretty good month. Next month, we do have three more books. We're going to have uh, World's Finest 203, Superman 237, and Action 401. So make sure you're here for that. Again, uh, make sure you, uh, if you really want to see uh, Dark Knight of the Metropolis collected as a trade paperback, make sure you uh, do what you can to help out. And make sure you mention that it's from crisis to crisis. So that's pretty much it. Um, you guys have a good week. And I will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. You can write to the show at umbc81 at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show two ways, via the RSS feed at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com or via iTunes. Also, if you like this show, make sure you check out the blogs and podcasts listed in the recommended sites section. And be sure to check out my reviews of other classic Superman comics at www.supermanhomepage.com. Superman and all related characters are copyright DC Comics. Also, any images or music used for this blog or podcast is purely for entertainment only. I do not make any money from this show. Thank you again for listening, and God bless.